today I got 30 new emails. I responded to 10, I read 10, and the last 10 I just deleted. How much trash did I create? I think with digital trash, just like real trash, it's stuff that at the moment we're not interested in and that we're happy to get rid of. But it may not be trash forever. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones, and today on Radio Berkman, we're taking out the digital trash with producer Elizabeth Gillis. Hi, Liz. Hi, Dan. So as some of you may have heard, Radio Berkman recently worked with the podcast Innovation Hub to tell this story about digital trash. So today on the podcast, we'd like to play that story again, but this time we're going to include some of the details at the end that didn't make it to air, kind of like deleted scenes. So if you haven't heard the story yet, here's the whole story. On your computer, you really don't ever take out the trash. Data doesn't get picked up by a garbage truck. It doesn't decompose in a landfill. It's just there. Even if you don't think about it, all this stuff accumulates. Judith Donath is an author and scholar of social networks. She calls this problem digital hoarding. It's sort of like the person whose house has slowly filled up with mail and circulars and newspapers and bits of furniture and the things that a renter left behind years ago. So they just didn't make the effort at some point to go through it and throw it out. I mean, we've all probably tried or maybe just thought about going through those old files to see whatever bits of your old self are left there. Jack Cushman actually did. He's a fellow at the Berkman Center studying the digital archives of Harvard researchers. The hard drives of academics contain a ton of really important data, which poses a problem if you want to save it all. I've been working on sort of how do you how do you preserve these kind of massive digital repositories that we all create without thinking about it, that for us are just the trash. We're going to retire and we'll delete that and we'll never think about it again, but that 50 years from now, someone's really going to care about. So you're doing this project looking at archives on hard drives. Yep. Where does that take you? Sure. So I was working on that. And at the same time, I was moving at my house and I was going through my basement and old boxes of papers from college and that kind of thing. And I found a box with three bare hard drives at the bottom of it. So Cushman's confronted with his own data equivalent of basement junk from when he was a teenager. And being a digital archivist, he's just gotta see what's on there. And I realized that one of the drives had been formatted and wiped on September 10th, 2001. You see, one of the ways to reuse a hard drive is to format it. It's like if you wrote on a piece of paper, then erased everything and wrote over it. All the old data is gone, and the tracks are obscured. Well, almost. What it looked like was a a fresh new Windows drive, but then back behind it there were these scraps of old files that had been created and lost. And so I found these three emails that I had exchanged with my first girlfriend in eighth grade. All this data, these ones and zeros, Cushman created whether he was aware of it or not. And even though he forgot about them and even tried to delete them, they still exist somewhere just as they were, but in pieces. Again, in the past, the default has been to forget, and the exception was to remember. Uh, and that default was built into our brains. Victor Meyer Schoenberger is an Oxford professor. He's also the author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. He says that as people transitioned into a more digital world, one of the things we embraced was the ability to retain everything. Suddenly, we had unlimited memory. All through human history, remembering, capturing stuff was hard, was time-consuming, was costly. And so now we are like a kid in the candy store, and we indulge in our ability to create digital memories up to the point where we realize that too much of a good thing actually is a bad thing. 
Now what you're seeing is an evolution in the type of tools we use to store and deliver memories. For example, Mayor Schoenberger says his students will use Facebook for what they call press releases. Posting stuff that they want their future employers or their, their grandparents to see. That is the kind of curated persistency that they want for some pieces of information. But for other social stuff, like the photo taken in the bar last night, they'll use a platform that deletes automatically, like Snapchat. According to a Pew study released in August, 41% of smartphone owners ages 18 to 29 use apps that automatically delete sent messages. So if Jack Cushman were a teenager today, there's a good chance he wouldn't have exchanged many emails with his girlfriend at all. In fact, finding the remnants of the digital conversations between teens today would be a lot harder. Snapchat's founder, Evan Spiegel, said his larger hope for the app is that it'll allow people, not just teens, to share photos without feeling like they're curating their own super boring permanent records. And that was in 2012. In the years since, we've seen politicians tweet naked photos of themselves. We've seen the fallout from the Sony email leak. And we've seen millions of names released from a website designed for those who want to have an affair. In other words, kids these days have seen scores of older individuals hurt by the data they launched into cyberspace and forgot about. Maybe even tried to delete. Even Cushman, when he uncovered all that data, said he found stuff he didn't necessarily want to see again. That show me in eighth grade to have been someone who read a lot of science fiction books and really never talked to human beings. <laughs> and, and that absolutely I will never reveal to the world. That's kind of the problem with digital memories, says Meyer Schoenberger. Your past self is presented to you just as you were, without all the years of experience and change stored in your brain. With digital memories, we have difficulties shedding our past, even though we as human beings may have changed as we are doing all the time. He says, psychologically, forgetting performs a really important function. It allows us to forgive and grow as people. To me, it all comes down to the issue of trust. Trust that we have in our digital tools, in our digital services, to accept us as the human beings we are, as the changing entities that we are. And even with tools that delete by default, Judith Donath says she's not ready to trust the tools we have today. For example, does Facebook know what pictures, statuses, and memories you want to retain from 2013? People have their timelines, and they sort of try and get at this, but I think in a very heavy-handed and not very well-thought-out way. You know, they'll just post, here's some highlights from your previous year, without recognizing that that's probably not the best job for a machine to do. With better tools, she says companies could help you sift through your digital stuff. Your old emails, your photos, your tweets and timeline posts, and help you better understand the most important patterns and highlights. I think that's the problem that we face is trying to preserve enough of the digital record that we're laying down things of value. And maybe an important part of that is giving people the opportunity to make their own preservation choices about the things that they've created. For the first time in probably the history of man, deletion isn't the default. It's a world where everyday conversations between two 15-year-olds can be perfectly preserved for a decade. And in this digital record, you might be making decisions about what to keep forever 
and what data would be better stored as an old-fashioned memory. Okay, so that's where the main story ends, but there's a little more to dig into. First of all, I think one of the things that really sticks out is the fact that Jack had formatted his drive, which means he basically wiped it. But he was still able to recover all this information. Yeah, people usually ask me about that when I tell them the story. And it was something I asked him about. Where does your data go when you try to delete it? It is impossible to know. If it's in your possession, then you can try to start having a model for where it is. So if you have a file on your desktop, then you can start to think, well, I know that this file really is a bunch of ones and zeros that are on a hard drive, which really is a physical object in my computer. And there should be some set of instructions I can give to my computer that will make sure that this file is gone. And even that is a hard challenge because it, it could delete just the reference to the file and not delete anything else. Or you could use a more sophisticated delete tool that deletes the reference to the file and writes over the file itself with random data. But if and that's you, a tool. That's not just something your computer. That's would not do something your computer will do for you. No, yeah. uh, you need you need a secure delete tool of some kind. Cushman says programs like Microsoft Word might make backup copies of one file stored in different places around your hard drive. The computer might only delete your pathway to the data or a copy, but not the actual data itself. Here's another example of something he found on his hard drive. The other thing that I had fantasized about finding was the. Uh, in the website that I created with my best friend when I was like 12 years old that we created and put on GeoCities and was lost to the world. And I remembered some of the sort of file names and so I searched through for those and I found not the actual files but just a file listing of another hard drive that no longer exists that showed that they had been in my possession when I was 15 or 17. So these were kind of like ghosts. Exactly. Impressions of data that I used to have that I could just sort of see the, the lingering traces of but couldn't actually access and these ghosts themselves are data right exactly so cushman was finding data but just the data the computer was using to make sense of the data that meant something to him yeah because a lot of it wasn't meaningful to him right yeah i don't know if i've stressed this enough most of it completely meant nothing to cushman a massive universe of meaningless structured data obscuring the little bits of meaningful structured data that right. I actually wanted. So these are like, this is the data that's telling your hard drive how to be formatted so that the computer yeah. can use it, right? All kinds of stuff that shows up on any computer hard drive when you're using it. Okay. So when you press the on button, there's all of your operating system files that kick into gear and know how to operate the screen and how to launch applications. Uh, and that could be hundreds of thousands of files there. And then when you install applications, they each might come with tens of thousands more files. And so it was, it was masses and masses and masses of data that were meaningful to someone, but totally uninteresting to me. And all this kind of gets to something else I found really interesting in this story. People collect so much data that they don't really know what to do with. In Cushman's case, it was a lot of this operational stuff we don't even realize is piling up. So this is a really good place to bring in Judith Dunneth, who is the professor we talked to for the story. She's the one who came up with this really interesting way of talking about all this data that we collect. She calls it data hoarding. And she says we could be keeping this stuff for a lot of different reasons. One example is this thing called the quantified self-movement. There's a feeling that up until the 21st century, we've lived these incredibly unexamined lives. We didn't know how our heart, heart rate changed from day to day and minute to minute, but now we can track that and see what happens if we drink one more cup of coffee, more or less. 
Dunneth says that the ability to collect unlimited data makes us feel like we should monitor our lives completely. You kind of get addicted to just knowing that you have this information there. Uh, since you have the space for it, why not collect it? But the problem is we still don't have all the tools that we need to better keep the information that we care about to kind of discern between the things that matter and the things that don't. And she says, because so much of life happens online, saving this data is really appealing. Our virtual lives are very disembodied. And I think there is a very strong sense for a lot of people that this is where our social life is taking place, our work life, all kinds of things about that are important to us are increasingly occurring online. And there's no visit, um, there's no um, vivid memory of them because you can't remember a party in a particular bar. There's no scent, there's no vision, there's no sound that goes with them. But what there is is this data. And so as you accumulate this data, it starts to give a corpus to your past experiences as they are carried out online. Yeah, as we talk about in the story, this feeling of retaining everything might not last forever. If the tools are created to curate this content or automatically delete it, there's a good chance we'll be quick to adopt them. So I really love this story because it kind of highlights this weird state that we're in right now um, where we have just the ability to collect a lot of data, but we don't just because we have this ability doesn't mean we should. And now we're coming to this place where we're learning about what matters to keep and what doesn't matter to, to keep. And we're actually having all of these cases that uh, come up and show us uh, the dangers of collecting data and keeping data and having data public and private. Um, all of these like cases of hacks and Snapchats. It's true, yeah. And it's it's something that, I don't know, looking at the story and focusing on the younger generations and how their use of Snapchat is is the greatest. It's something that they've they've grown up through as opposed to people who just, you know, aren't digital natives, which is another really interesting component to it. Yeah, I wonder if this is kind of a generational divide thing too, because I think um, if if I may represent the older, an older generation, <laughs> or a generation that didn't have the internet when we were very young, uh, we, we come to this place where we're like, oh my gosh, we can collect all this information about us, ourselves. And uh, that's just incredibly exciting. And so um, we might not you know, be inhibited about like just how much data that we keep. I've got like hard drive after hard drive at home of just stuff. So Liz, as the ambassador for the... The generation that uses Snapchat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, something about it, I guess, is kind of appealing, but I think it goes back to that point um, Victor Mayer Schoenberger makes in his interview with you um, about how if the tools are there people, humans, are just going to use the one that applies to that specific situation for them. And I think that um, a younger generation has really caught on to this idea that we can just have these conversations that delete and you can have a digital conversation, but you don't have to worry about it being around forever. Um, it can be meaningless. Like it can be just you sending weird faces or emojis to a friend and it goes away. It's not still there. But that definitely responds to kind of a market demand for like there's fewer younger people using Facebook for that kind of conversation. They're using it for like the press releases, like he says. So, but they want to have this space where they can talk just like they would if they were, you know, under a tree in the park. Right, right, exactly. Um, and I think that, that that market demand you're talking about is something that, you know, Evan Spiegel's talking about when he's quoted in a story 
as saying um, he's the founder of Snapchat and and the quote I use from him is that it, Snapchat's a way to you know have these digital conversations without having to worry about curating your own permanent record your digital record so it's automatic tech technology curating for you it's automatically deleting but it's still about choosing that tool and I think it's an interesting point that as long as the tools are available that's the first step then people will choose to use the correct tool in the correct situation yeah so it's it's interesting to me going back to what something victor said um that how if you can't delete this version of yourself you can't forget about these parts of you that are from the past basically i think he sums it up as if you can't forget you can't forgive and he says that's kind of hardwired into the human experience into the human brain Um, Whereas I was kind of like thinking, you know, if we have all of this information out there, we can continue to learn from our past and we can also become more empathetic about other people and that other people make mistakes and make some of the same mistakes that we do. Right. And that's something that Jack Cushman said um, when I talked to him. He's saying it's all about just remembering that my 30-year-old self is different from my 15-year-old self and I don't have to just think that, you know, this is the same person that I I am today. Um, But I think that that's... Maybe not everybody can do that in the same way. I think that might be something very specific to Jack. Uh, it's interesting because uh, Victor Mayer Schoenberger points out that it's not the same as a memory. It's not the same as remembering who you were when you were 15, when it's all faded. It's you're presented with the cold hard, like this is what I said, and this is what the person said back to me, and this is how I responded, and this you're presented with this is exactly the way it happened without time kind of affecting those memories and without those experiences. You're, you're like presented with another self. It's like reliving that. Yeah, it's like reliving. It. It's all the feelings come back to you from yes. that moment. So. Yeah, it's kind of like um, to get into kind of a sci-fi territory, having this like digital, digital avatar of yourself right. that <laughs> exists for every year of your life. That's this permanent... Permanent. record of yourself exactly and then you know in the next future we just make those into bots and then you can talk to yourself from each year of yeah, your life talk to your eight-year-old self talk to your eight-year-old self that'd be really fun <laughs> i think i'd like that a lot right it, but uh what we're hearing in these interviews is that people don't want to do that don't want to do that. <laughs> that it prevents you from growing to have to talk to your talk to yourself at eight nine ten years old i don't think i would want to talk to my eight eight year old self for very long it's true especially because that eight-year-old self wouldn't change they're stuck in eight years old right yeah they never they never turn nine they're pinocchio oh so sad or peter pan or peter pan yeah there's a movie out there waiting to happen there is is. (laughs) so this is very interesting liz thank you so much (laughs) of course thank you we'll call it a day for radio berkman this week as always you can find out more about this topic and our guests at the show notes for today's episode at cyber.law.harvard.edu This week's episode was produced by Elizabeth Gillis with me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and the folks over at WGBH's Innovation Hub, Mary Dew and Kara Miller, from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 